Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami I'm left really speechless seeing this stream of suffering that we've all witnessed together today. I don't really know what to say in the face of it. Except to reflect on the way that we practice here and the way that we've been guided through the Buddha's teachings. In the hopes that these reflections may somehow bring us a bit of spaciousness, a bit of strength and a bit of courage to meet the enormous load that life gives us each day, if not to one, then to another. There seems to be an endless stream of dukkha in this world. And because we are all connected, we are actually all one family, though we have our particular units, family units, that we're strongly affiliated with attached to, dear to, we really are very much related. In the hopes that these reflections can help us to gain some foothold upon which we can be standing courageously in the face of anything. When we started out this voyage together, I invited you to join me on the journey of a mystic, to set foot in a boat unfamiliar to you, a vessel of which dimensions none of you knew, and let it drift out to sea without really knowing where you were going. Here we are in that boat, afloat, using mindfulness, wise reflection, and pure consciousness as much as possible in each moment as our only compass. So what is the way of the mystic? And how does it make sense of all this tragedy, 
all this suffering, all these tears, oceans of tears, lifetimes of tears, loss of dear and beloved ones, gifted, full of life, full of energy, leaving behind young children, dying in agony, cutting short their lives or their lives being cut short without any notice, without any reason, just in this mysterious way that we can't make sense of and we grieve. The mystic is one who faces the unknown with an open heart, who is ready to surrender himself or herself to the moment without any tools, without any supports seemingly, without any external control over conditions. The mystic is an internal voyager who takes himself or herself out of the world and dives down deep into the recesses of their own heart, body, mind, alone, holding on to no one, to nothing, in deepest darkness, looking for light. And I bring to mind the great poetry of St. John of the Cross, through that dark night, searching for truth. How is it possible to search in the darkness? How is it possible to go through oceans of tears without some kind of sense being made out of it for us, some comfort, some reason? The mystic operates without reason. The mystic is not a rational mover. He or she is one who works through prayer, meditation, faith, purity of mind, using the faculties of wisdom, investigation, longing and love of truth and thereby searches and thereby asks what does it mean and suffers no end of agonies therein. Perhaps many of the people who we've heard who have died by hanging themselves or taking their lives prematurely, were in fact misguided mystics, unable to make sense of the world around them, and thinking that this was a way that they could find some truth, some haven of peace, through violence, 
through ending it all. A forced cessation. Nature will give us cessation. We don't have to force it. It will happen to all of us. There is another way to find that peace, to find that relief, that release from our suffering. Even in the midst of cancer, even in the midst of the most terrible loss, there is a way out of all this madness. There was a woman named Patachara who lived during the time of the Buddha. She was very beautiful. At the age of 16, born into a very wealthy family, Patachara was imprisoned in a seven-story mansion by her parents. So afraid were they that she would be uh, taken off by some unsuitable young man because of her great beauty. Unfortunately for them, she fell in love with one of the servants in that mansion, disguised herself, and eloped with him. After some time, living in Savati with this young man, who came from a very poor family, she became pregnant. And realizing that her parents might have pity on her and sympathy for her because of she was with child, she asked her husband to take her back to her parents' home that they might care for her. But he refused. Now, Patachara was a very willful young woman, not to be deterred, very independent, as we've seen already. So she set off for her parents' home on her own, without telling her husband. And when he found out from the neighbors what had happened to his wife, he went after her, and found her. And they set off for her parents' home. But before they reached her parents' home, she gave birth to the child, a little boy. So thinking, it is no use anymore, they returned to Salvati. Some years later, she became pregnant again. And again, she begged her husband to take her to her parents' home. And he refused. And being a willful, strong-minded, independent woman, unusual in those days perhaps for women to do such things, she set off on her own. Nothing unusual in our culture, but think of it in those days. A few months pregnant, all by yourself, no cars, no paved roads, just walking in... um, on the Indian subcontinent, in the heat, in the jungle, unprotected, undefended. And again, her husband discovered what she'd done, and he went in search of her, and he found her. They continued on their trip, and were faced one night with a terrible storm. 
and just then her labor pains began. She had with her her little boy, and she was pregnant with the second one, and fearful for their well-being during the night, she sent her husband to chop or cut down some wood. He did so, and while he was cutting the wood, a snake came out of an anthill and bit him, and he died on the spot. Now Patachara did not know this. She waited, having given birth already to the second child, with her husband having not returned, and the storm fully upon them, terrified, anguished, haggard from her labor, with two screaming infants. They weathered the night out in the open. And in the morning, she took her children in her arms and continued towards her parents' home. However, she soon found her husband's body and wailed and lamented, screaming with grief at what had happened. And soon she came to a river that was swollen from the night of rain. It had been a terrible storm. She was too weak to cross the river with both children, so she laid her older son on the bank and went across with the infant. She put the infant that was in her arms on the other side of the river and turned back to get her little boy that was waiting for her. And then a hawk swooped down and mistook this little infant for a piece of meat, grabbed it in its talons and swooped away. And when she saw this bird with her screaming infant in its claws, she began to wail loudly. And her little son, thinking his mother was calling her, went into the river and immediately got swept away. There and then, bereft of both her children and her husband, nearly mad with grief, she continued towards her parents' home. As she neared the town, she met a traveler who saw her in a very stricken state. She said, tell me, and she asked after her parents, And he said, ask me about any family but that one. For last night there was a terrible storm and their house collapsed and both mother and father and their young son were killed. And there is the spire of the funeral, the smoke from the funeral pyre lifting into the air where they have been cremated just now. At that point, She really went mad, mad with grief. She tore off her clothes and wailed and began to throw herself down on the earth. The people in the area just took her for a mad woman and threw rubbish at her and called her a fool and wouldn't let anyone go near her. And pretty soon she approached the place where the Buddha resided 
and she was they tried to stop her from going to see him but the buddha recognized this woman's state and so he called her to him and someone gave her his cloak so that she could cover herself and she came before the buddha and he said to her how many oceans of tears have you cried in your lifetimes more than all the waters in all the seas so many tears have you shed speaking about the universality of suffering and the impermanence of all conditioned things he gave her this teaching and reflecting on this she soon realized everything that is born perishes there is nothing that comes into this world that does not cease to exist after some time mother father brother sisters child children grandparents husbands wives all she eventually became a bhikkhuni fully ordained nun and attained full enlightenment this was more than 2500 years ago if we think back in time that how many people have passed through the gates of life and through the gates of death how much blood has been shed how many tears have been cried all these millennia there is no one no one immune to this ancient law this universal law all conditioned phenomena are transient they arise they subsist and they cease they have the nature to arise and the nature to cease and in their cessation there is peace now you may wonder how there can be real peace in death when we are left feeling so much grief so much anguish so much sorrow so much bereavement but in fact isn't it because of what we take to be ours who is it that dies what is it that dies all 
all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Identified with this body, with these five heaps, as we call them, in the Buddha's terminology. Forms, visible forms, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, thoughts, memories, and consciousness, these five heaps. Is there, is there anybody in there? Is it all not just constantly changing, impermanent conditionality? Where is the refuge? Where is the shelter in that which is impermanent? What can we find safety in? One of you said, May they find safety to your loved ones who are struggling. May they find safety. Is it possible to find safety, to find peace in things which are bound for death, in conditions which are death-bound? How do we find peace? So the mystic, on their journey, asks inside, who am I? What is this body-mind? And in that asking, probing very deeply, witnessing the arising and cessation in each moment, of tempests, of agonies, of fears, of the darkest nights, considers, ponders, patiently endures, realizes their own true nature, which is not conditioned, which is not death-bound. Thinking of Mimi, we heard about last night, who went through a pretty horrible existence, torture in prison camps and concentration camps, physical abuse of the worst kind, reduced to an animal, she still remained a human being. She did not give up being human. What does that mean? 
she remained a human being. She was treated like an animal, and she did not lose her dignity. She understood the art of suffering. She did not hate or resent her abusers. How can we do such a thing? Reflect on your own lives. Is there anyone here who has never been criticized? Emotionally insulted, if not physically harmed? Frightened? maltreated justly or unjustly anyone and how do we respond in those situations very normally very naturally it's not a, it's it's not a failure it's just quite natural for us to receive hatred ill will, hostility, aggression, with resistance, with a similar feeling. Don't come close to me. Don't speak to me like that. How dare you? Or leave me alone. I can't take it. Is there anyone here who has never been faced with that kind of scenario? And when you were, what kind of tool did you have then to receive that energy in a peaceful way? Maybe some of you have. Certainly, all of us may have tried to. But the hurt, the pain, just like when a dear friend kills themselves, that's That is hurtful. Or when a parent dies and we miss them, that hurts. How do we respond to these hurts of life? We do feel anger. We do feel sorrow. We do feel grief. And we carry it around with us for years. And it enslaves us. These feelings have a tremendous power over our minds so that any time we come close to a similar situation, we're back there again. The anger, the fear, the sorrow, the despair, the depression, the mind gets into a habit, an emotional habit, And we're caught. Even coming up here to speak about these sorrows, which are now only memories, how many tears more are we going to shed just by the power of memory? How do we get through it? How do we go towards the fire of our suffering? 
and face it with peace in our hearts? How do we accept it? How do we allow it to burn inside us without being burned up? This is the work of this practice. This is the discovery that we are all yearning for. It is possible. to become fearless, to realize peace within our hearts right here and now, in the middle of all this pain. We are right now in very supportive condition. It's a beautiful retreat center. We have very tender and caring managers looking after us and benevolent cooks cooking for us and Hope Sue didn't hurt herself too badly Uh, and we're all here together we're keeping silence nobody's going to say a nasty word to anyone these are very suitable conditions for looking at all this stuff and that's why these situations are so precious because there is the mirror, there is the pool, it's completely still. All we have to do is look in the water and see our own reflection. Don't be frightened by what you see. It is true. You are looking at the truth, your own frightened face. But don't mistake the shadow of the moon for the moon. Because that apparition in the water is not you. That's just your mental habits and your accumulated pain and emotions and conditioning from this whole lifetime or many lifetimes. The real you or the non-you is not reflected there in that water but is reflected here inside of you, in the mirror of your mind. It is in the mirror of the mind that we must, that we can realize that stillness, that calmness, which will help us to see who we really are. And in that moment, we will taste peace, a kind of peace that you can never again turn your backs on. No matter how much suffering life will deal you, you will always be able to come back to that precious moment and build on it, widen it. It doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. It doesn't mean you're not going to get old. It doesn't mean you will not die. It's about knowing how to live, how to die, how to accept your joy and your pain. Suffering is a given. What do we do with it? What do we do to ourselves and to each other? 
this practice of training the mind is that way of calming those troubled internal waters to a point of absolute stillness and clarity. The very important ingredients for that, to be sure, are purity of conduct, physical conduct, speech, and even thought. Contemplate this. What is your mind like when you're angry? What is the angry mind doing? It's burning. It's like this. It's condensed, it's contracted, it's tense, it's full of energy, but it is out of control. It's unskillful. Receiving that kind of energy or giving it ourselves creates a vibration within us and in all those around us which does not conduce, which does not support, which does not promote a peaceful state of being. What about sorrow? You might think that sorrow is a pretty benevolent state of mind. How benevolent can it be if it overwhelms us? Sorrow is a a natural feeling. I'm not saying dismiss it. I'm not asking us to throw away grief. Not at all. On the other hand, I'm saying accept it, but know it for what it is. It's not you. It is arising due to conditions, due to loss of the dear ones, loss of our own health. due to suffering of our loved ones or ourselves. It is conditioned. It arises because of conditions. It subsists and it ceases. It is impermanent. It's not your true nature. Then why do we invest so much belief, so much of our energy and attention on being ravaged by sorrow, by grief, by anger, spun around, caught, maddened, stricken, depressed, dysfunctional. There is a beauty, and it has its moment, but at a certain point, we must know it for what it is. We must step back from that, from that pain and understand, what is this? We must open our hearts so that the stream of life can pour through us without drowning us. We still grieve, but we're not overwhelmed. We don't lose our balance. The mind is still clear and still understands the nature of sorrow. It doesn't take refuge in it. It doesn't look for shelter in it. It understands there is a truth 
a beingness, a presence, which contains sorrow and joy at the same time. For joy is hidden in that sorrow. And that is what we are coming to awaken to. That in the dying to our hatred, our greed, our aversion, our panic, our resentment, our frustration, our bereavement, in dying to all those things, in letting them go at their own time, not forcibly, we come to be more fully alive. We come to be enriched. We come closer to being in harmony with our true nature, to being in union. It's a surrender. It's a giving up, a giving into. It's standing at the brink of the world and not clinging to anything or anyone, but embracing it all in that huge universal mind which connects each and every one of us invisibly in ways we are still learning to fathom. I look at you, my elders, I see my mothers sitting there, going before me on the path of life. I honor you. I look at all of you. I see brothers and sisters in birth, aging, and death. We are. How do we stand up with dignity and grace? How do we come to terms with all that life gives us? How do we stand and look in the mirror of the heart and see that reflection and in the face of the most fiery fire? We bow. We burn, but we accept. I'm not asking you to to cremate yourselves, obviously. I'm talking about an internal process. (coughs) It's not about physical death. It's a spiritual dying. It's a spiritual holocaust. And it takes a lot of patience, courage. It's the work of a lifetime. We have this moment. It's the only moment we have. We have this moment as our lifetime. Nothing else is known beyond now. That's why I urge you to practice with continuity not just when you're sitting still in the most peaceful conditions, being fed nice food and dim lights, with everything silent, all the right conditions, and you think, I feel so peaceful. And then the moment you get out the door 
and somebody happens to walk a little bit too much in a hurry in front of you, you're angry. Or the moment you get back to your office, to your place of work, to the vihara, behind your car, you're depressed, you're negative, you're resentful, you're bitter, you're carrying all the agony of your whole life, twisted up into every cell of your body, unable to relax, unable to breathe, unable to be alive, because the pain is so overwhelming and we are so identified with it that we cannot see the shining, the light that we are carrying within us. We don't have to light candles on the shrine, but it's a lovely thing to do. We are candles already. We are each of us perfect. But there's just this film of dust in front of our eyes, which prevents us from seeing clearly what we really are. And so we begin to panic when we're told we have three months to live, or despair when our loved one suddenly gets cancer and dies. We just cannot accept it, because we think we are this body, these five heaps, these conditions that arise and cease, that are death-bound. We are not those conditions. Through awareness we discovered the unconditioned within us. We touch that truth. And then we really realize illumination. And our assumptions that we enter into the eternal. Surrendering into the moment accepting fully, acknowledging our humanity. The Buddha was so wise. He understood. If we never died, think of it. What if you never died? What would it be like? What if you never got old? What if you never got sick? What would it be like? Could we really love each other if we were here forever? It seems that that which is most precious is that which we lose. These things bring up in us an urgency. It is through loss of life that we really learn to love. is through our own mortality that we really learn to search for wisdom. And the Buddha seemed to know that. He said that 
the human realm is the most suited place for a human being to realize the unshakable deliverance of the heart because of this blend of happiness and suffering. Contemplate that. How suffering, how dukkha can take us beyond suffering. Don't look for happiness in things which are death-bound. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out in your lives and enjoy each other's company, enjoy your family lives, enjoy your work, go to a restaurant and have a pleasurable meal, wear nice clothes, Enjoy the fineries of this human realm. It's not a denial of that, but just realize the limitations of that kind of happiness because it's the happiness that is born from temporary things, from things which are impermanent. And it is not ultimate happiness, which is essentially what all of us are yearning for, something that we will not lose. And so if we look for happiness where we can really find it, we will find it. But we have to be able to face that fire. We may have to suffer. We may have to bear fear, go through a very dark night, weather a terrible storm. and eventually realize that stillness, stillness of the heart in which we are looking in that internal mirror and wisdom begins to arise. You will find in there a happiness unlike anything of this earthly realm. And it will sustain you in the darkest moments. I'd like to read to you Another small quote from Eti Hilesum. I have looked our destruction, our miserable end, which has already begun in so many small ways in our daily life, straight in the eye, and accepted it into my life. And my love of life has not been diminished. I am not bitter or rebellious or in any way discouraged. I continue to grow from day to day, even with the likelihood of destruction staring me in the face, 
the reality of death has become a definite part of my life. My life has been, so to speak, extended by death, by looking death in the eye and accepting it, accepting destruction as part of life and no longer wasting my energies on fear of death or the refusal to acknowledge its inevitability. By excluding, it sounds paradoxical, that by excluding death from our life, we cannot live a full life. By admitting death, we enlarge and enrich our lives. Look at these candles. They are burning very brightly, but as they burn, they die. Take that image into your hearts and contemplate it. How death and life are so connected. And use these teachings, this practice, for your own awakening. Now, today, from moment to moment, make it the most important thing in your life and you won't be disappointed. As Rumi said, don't try to be the sun. Lunar moth, love the candle, taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. Tasting your life, knowing who we really are, deepening in awareness, awakened, intuitive, conscious living, we discover the unconditioned within us. We go beyond the limitations of our conditions. We don't reject them. But we discover the eternal, the light within us, which is beyond conditions. We touch that truth. We really realize illumination. That's all that it's about. It's about being fully alive in the present moment. By dying to ignorance, by letting go of illusion, by dying to hatred, to greed, to our grief, to our attachments, to our desires, we awaken.
of course we still feel desire. We are human beings, but we don't rob ourselves. We don't destroy our humanity. We are as Eti, or that wonderful person that you may have known in your life, who was completely at ease in the middle of the most awful conditions. Or when it seemed as there was nothing to be happy about. Or perhaps we are like that person who totally trusted him or herself and thereby awakened in us the possibility to live with so much trust. Socrates once said, those who love wisdom practice dying all the time, and death to them is the least terrible thing in the world. By facing our own humanity, we can realize that which is eternal. It is this strange paradox again. In dying, in burning, we give out light like the candle. As it grows smaller, it is giving out light. We awaken, we truly become alive. And the mystic, the mystic dives deep down into the darkness to look for that glowing pearl at the bottom of the ocean. If you stay above the ocean, you see only the waves, you see the movement, you see the change. You see the trouble. You see the irritation. If you dive down deep into your own truth, you find that which cannot really harm you, that place where you are eternally safe. Even in the moment of death, you can smile. You know that no one dies from your own realization. By coming here, you may have had an expectation that you could figure out how to get rid of these feelings, how to get rid of this terrible grief that you're feeling. Perhaps you considered to find out how to get rid of fear or how to overcome death. Actually, it's not by getting rid of anything. It's just by dropping our illusions and our assumptions that we enter into the eternal. We surrender into the moment. We accept life fully. We accept this moment 
no matter how terrible it is, exactly the way it is. And this is how we acknowledge our humanity. And it is also how we free ourselves.